happy Valentine's Day to all of you out there. And uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be returning to the book of Exodus this morning. And we're going to be looking at a long passage of Scripture, and we're not going to go through this verse by verse. Um, it's going to be starting in chapter 20, verse 22, and going all the way through chapter 23, verse 19. Um, scholars refer to this section as the book of the covenant. It's all these laws that uh, Israel kind of agrees to before they enter into this covenant with the Lord. And I look at a covenant as a, a relationship agreement, those kind of terms of the relationship that will allow that relationship to flourish and do will, really well. And uh, we've been out of Exodus for a while. Um, I hope you guys found a mailbox to fix last week after uh, Bob shared uh, his story and you were sensitive to the Holy Spirit and his leading in your life. So I want to thank Bob for, for sharing last week. And then we spent some time just focusing on prayer for several weeks um, and the reality of looking at life saying, okay, all of us, I think, want to experience the abundant life, what Jesus talks about in John 10.10, but we struggle to do that and recognizing that if we want to experience that abundant life, we're going to have to implement some of those lifestyle patterns that Jesus had in his life and to seek to live that out in our 21st century context. And the first one of those lifestyle patterns that we looked at was prayer, because you just see that permeating Jesus' life. And I just want you guys to be encouraged to keep pressing in in that area of prayer. Um, as we look around in the world today, we just wonder, okay, God, how are, how are we going to make a difference? And, and we make a difference one person at a time. That's always been the case. You look at the Great Commission and you just say, Lord, how in the world can this happen? And it can happen as an individual believer talks over their neighbor's fence and just interacts with them and shares the truth of the good news or with a fellow flight student or with a coworker that you just, as they say, gossip the gospel, that you just share that as a part of your life. And uh, that's what we want to be as a church, not people that just come on Sunday morning to check a religious box and we got this. We want to be a people of God that is working with God by his Holy Spirit in this world to draw men and women to himself. We are called ambassadors for Christ and we hopefully want to be good ambassadors for Christ. And to me, we recognize that that starts with prayer, that I can't change a person's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. God can use me in that process, but that needs to begin with prayer. And uh, Howard Hendricks, a famous old teacher, says you cannot impart what you do not possess. And so I think there's a lot of reality in that, that I'm not going to be able to introduce somebody to Christ if I'm not pursuing that relationship with Christ on my own. And to me, as we've said, one of the big ways that we do that is through prayer. So I just want to encourage you to keep pressing in on that. We're not going to be talking about it a lot in the next weeks, but uh, we're back in Exodus, but that is not a, oh, we don't have to pray right now. No, keep praying, keep doing that. Um, we're in this part of Exodus that uh, if you're reading through the Bible in the year, this is often the part that you kind of derail at, and you're just like, oh, what in the world is going on here? Okay, I got through the Ten Commandments. I, I kind of like that, but now we're we're getting into some really, really strange stuff, and it doesn't seem to be super well organized from a systematic perspective. And there's lots of, of stuff that just seems frankly bizarre. Um, it's a little bit chaotic. Um, and some seems frankly, even a little bit barbaric to us from our perspective. And 
we read through this and it's just like, okay, Lord, how as a Christian who follows Jesus Christ, am I supposed to apply this stuff in my life? Is this binding on me? You know, I don't own an ox. My ox has never gored anybody. My, yeah, that's never been an issue with me. I, I don't own slaves. Um, I've never been tempted to boil a young goat in its mother's milk, you know. So you read through this stuff and you're just going, okay, Lord, how in the world can this apply to me? And as we read the New Testament, we recognize that this law is described in many ways, but one of the ways it's described in Galatians 3.24, it's, it's a guardian or it's a tutor to lead us to Christ. It, it shows us that we fall short and that we need a savior. But once we get to Christ, do we fire the tutor? Do we just kick it out? Do we say, okay, this, this has no relevance in our life right now. Do we stop our Bible reading here and say, okay, that was for the Jews back then. How do I respond to this law and some of its very strange requirements. And this is going to be some material that I've already spoken on in October about dealing with the law. But the first thing, and I want to reiterate this, is that the law was never given to save us in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but to help God's people flourish in their relationship with him and with each other. We saw this in Exodus chapter 19, where the people are coming out. They've been freed. They've been rescued from Egypt, right? The Passover has happened. God has provided a sacrifice that would cover them. And then they got to the edge of the Red Sea. And what did they get told? It wasn't, all right, now you guys get your buckets out. Start getting really furious about trying to, no, be still and watch my deliverance. So these are the people of God that God has already rescued. And in chapter 19, verse 4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's saying, I was the one that brought you out of slavery into this relationship with me. Now, therefore, because of that, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. We looked at that word, segula, you're, you're my treasure among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is your calling. You're to be priests. You're to represent God, not only to one another, but to the nations around you. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So before even getting into any of the commandments, God reminds his people, hey, I was the one that brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you. Your salvation is not based on your obedience to this law. But now this is how I want you to relate to me and to others. So I think we need to recognize in this as we look at the law that this is not something that saves us. And I think that can kind of deflate a little bit of that pressure that we sometimes feel to do this all perfectly. I've got to get this right. Because as you look at the law, sometimes we feel burdened by it. But as we read that passage in Psalm 19, the law was something, oh, this is awesome. It's sweet. It's delightful. It's more to be desired than gold. This is an incredible thing. It was viewed as a blessing, not as, oh, I've got to obey all these laws. But this is coming in a world that is very broken and dysfunctional. And the law comes and people say, this is how we relate to our God. This is how we become close to our God. And again, as we look at this, and as we look at the Bible as a whole, it's 
not simply a rule book. It's not an answer book. If you look at the Bible in that way, you're going to get really, really frustrated. And we saw a little bit of that before where the first institution of the Passover, the people are told to roast the lamb, right? Don't boil it. But then later on, it says, okay, boil. And it's like, what in the world is going on? If, we're, if you're the engineering type or the OCD type, says, okay, I've got to have everything lined out here. Do I boil the lamb or do I roast it? And it's like both are given there. And we've talked about the fact that these laws are more kind of ordinances that deal with specific situations at specific times. And there's a principle behind it, but the application of that principle changes based on the situation. And that's difficult sometimes for us as evangelicals to hear because we want, okay, this is the black and white answer to everything. So let me give you an example. You're on social media, you know, you type something and somebody responds in a comment that's just really inane, really stupid. Do you respond to that comment? And so you look to the Bible for help. You say, oh, I'm going to look in Proverbs. And so you look through Proverbs and you get to Proverbs 26.4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And you're like, okay, great. Got my answer there. We're moving on. Then you read one more verse. The next verse right after this says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, what in the world am I supposed to do here? I just want the answer. I want it all in black and white. And we realize that in applying God's word, we need wisdom. Later on in that same chapter, and it's not like the writer of Proverbs is like an idiot and doesn't know that he gave these two things back to back that are just opposite of one another. In that same chapter, it says, the proverb in a mouth of a fool is like a thorn branch in the hand of a drunk. So what's he saying? Even though you may have the proverb, if you're not using that proverb correctly, based on the wisdom of God, it's going to be painful and it's not going to be helpful. So we need to come to the word recognizing that as we look at these principles, they're applied in different ways. And sometimes we need great wisdom to apply the truth of God's word. And again, you know, we recognize that. And as we move into the word as Christians, Jesus says we're under the new covenant, right? This, they didn't think it was the old covenant at the time, but it is the old covenant. And Jesus says we are under the new covenant that's in his blood. So now we relate to God. We enter into his presence, not through all of these rituals and through all of these laws that apply to Israel, but through Jesus Christ, our trust in him and what he has done on the cross. And as you look, and especially as you read through the book of Hebrews, kind of chapter seven through 10, you see some really powerful words about the place of the law. And Basically, in that book, it says, you know, this law is no longer applicable because before the priest had to come from the line of Aaron and Levi. And now you've got a new high priest, Jesus, who's not at all from that. He's from the tribe of Judah. So what in the world is going on? There has to be a change of the law for that to happen. And at the end of verse or end of chapter eight, he says this, that the law is obsolete. It's old and it's passing away. That's a pretty strong word to say. So what do we as Christians do with this old obsolete law? Is it to be done away with completely? How should we look at these passages 
in the Old Testament. To me, these passages are not binding on us as believers. It's clear in the New Testament that this law had its purpose and Jesus fulfilled that law completely in every way. But now we are under a new relationship agreement and that comes through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And even the Old Testament pointed to that. In Jeremiah 31, it says the issue there, we need a new heart, right? The issue for the Israelites was not that, oh, we don't understand this law. It's like, we don't want to do this law. And so the prophets realized the problem's not with the law. The problem is with the heart of the people. And as you read through the Old Testament, you can get frustrated because it's like they're told one thing. And then one chapter later, they're like just disobeying everything. They're like, yeah, we're on board with you, God. And then it's like, oh, miserable. And then they end up in exile. And the prophets get to the point, they recognize, you know what? The problem isn't with the law. Paul says the law is good. The problem is with the heart of human beings. And what we need is not more regulations. What we need is a transformed heart. And as we come to Christ, we're given a new heart and a new spirit to reside in us. We don't now comply by the letter of the law, but by the law of the spirit, the spirit of Christ that resides in us. So how do we view these passages now? To me, this is the whole relationship between the law and gospel and there's seminary courses and then you can get a stack of books this high to talk about this stuff. I'm not gonna do that this morning, but this is how I look at it. These laws help us gain wisdom that will hopefully help us love God more effectively and love people more effectively in our sinful and broken world by seeing how God called his Old Testament followers to love him and to love other people in their broken world. Jesus says what basically about the law? And two times he says, what's the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second like unto it? To love your neighbor as yourself. So he boils the whole law down to two things, loving God and loving other people. Paul says the same thing in Romans 13. Do not commit adultery, all these things, all that human commands towards one another can be summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself. So to me, as I look at these Old Testament laws, it takes me to a place like, okay, how does this law demonstrate how I can love God or how those people were called to love God or how we can love one another? And to recognize that this is difficult to do sometimes. Um, in reform thinking, you look at this law and then you say, okay, there's a moral part of this law. There's a ceremonial part of this law with the sacrifices and there's a civil part of this law. And they'll say the ceremonial part, the sacrifices, that's all ended. The civil part, that gets a little bit challenging to apply because we don't live in a theocracy anymore. You know, God is not our king at this time. He was Israel's king, right? And this is a situation where we're living a long, long time after these regulations were given, probably 3,500 years ago. And so it gets really, really challenging to put these things into our context. And sometimes when you say, okay, what's civil, what's ceremonial, what's moral, some of the times it, it sounds great in theory, but actually when you get in there and you're trying to figure out, well, which of these is that and which of it applies to my life, it gets really, really challenging. And to me, a more helpful way is to look at this as Jesus boiled it down to is a love for God and a love for other people. And how do these commands relate to that? 
again, to recognize that I think Israel was a theocracy. And as we look at the punishments and stuff like that, I don't think those are applicable for our time, but there are very many things in this law. As you look at even law in our world today, you see so many of these principles that have come in. And what was it? Uh, King Alfred in England who brought in common law. And a lot of that is based on the teachings of the Old Testament, not completely, but a lot of that is based on that. So our law system is very much based on a lot of these laws. Um, but again, we're not a theocracy, though some people would like to align being a Christian with a particular nation or a particular political party. Jesus was pretty clear when he was talking to Pilate, right? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. At one point in time, this was God's kingdom. He was the king. He ruled this nation, and this were, was his law for this nation. But when Jesus came, he says, okay, my kingdom is different. It's not any longer going to be attached to any specific political group or nation. My kingdom is not of this world, and I'm calling you to follow me, not any worldly kingdoms. Again, to look at these laws as well as applications, I think, in this section of the Ten Commandments. Because you look at the Ten Commandments, and there's a lot of ambiguity in there. Okay, what does it mean to, to keep the Sabbath? That's why the Jews came up with 39 rules of what it means to, to keep the Sabbath. Because I'm, there's just, what do we do? What's allowed? What's not allowed? And they're wrestling through that kind of stuff. And there needs to be wisdom there. So as I look at these laws here, I see them kind of as an illustration of the Ten Commandments lived out in this cultural context. And another thing I think you need to remember as you look at these laws is they weren't given to a perfect culture. It's not like this culture was perfect, that it was a neutral culture and God is just dropping his law and his, this is the ideal law for an ideal culture. We had an ideal culture. It was called the Garden of Eden. That was lost. We were booted out of the Garden of Eden and now we're living in this world and it's a broken and fallen world. And when the law comes into that world, oftentimes it regulates the sinfulness of the world, but it recognizes the sinfulness of the world as well. So as you see some of these laws, you're, you're scratching your head and wondering why in the world is God acting in this way? He's not condoning this behavior, but he's seeking to regulate it and make it more humane. And again, if you compare the laws in the Old Testament here with other ancient Near Eastern law codes, the Newsy tablets, Hammurabi, Memi, some of you have heard of, to me, there's some huge advances here over those other ancient Near Eastern law codes. And I just want to talk about some of those this morning. You may be able to pull out more from this section, but just to look at this as an Israelite would look like, wow, this is an amazing advance in terms of what we've been looking at culturally. And remember, they're coming out of slavery in Egypt. They've been fully kind of indoctrinated in that worldview. They're coming out of that. They've been slaves. And now God says, this is now my rescue, and this is now how I want you to live in relationship to me and in relationship to other people. And so the first advance that I want to talk about is just worship. It says in verse 22, and the Lord says to Moses, thus you shall say, this is chapter 20, to the people of Israel. And again, look at this at the front end. The law was given to all the people of Israel. In Egypt, who made the laws? Pharaoh. Nobody questioned that. He could say whatever he wanted and do whatever he wanted. But now all of a sudden this law is communicated to all 
of the people. This is how I want all of you to respond. If you're in a ruling position and leadership position, or even if you're a commoner, this is a law for you. You've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So the first thing he starts out here with is worship. And this goes back to the beginning of the Ten Commandments, right? How do we worship this God? And throughout this section, you'll see don't make idols, don't worship a false God. All of those things kind of permeate this section. Why is God so uptight about this? Because he wants them to know him as he really is. And when we get in relationship with God as he really is, he's able to bless us. And that's how we're designed to function. And he says, I don't want you, in essence, to worship like the nations around you. I don't want any sorcery, any magic, any manipulation. I don't want any idols. I don't want any images. I don't want any other gods before me. And then he says, I don't want you to have steps on the altar. Why does he go into that? If you read about Canaanite and pagan religion in that day and age, it was very sexual, okay? Some of the priests served naked, right? And there was often sexual activity that was associated with worship. And the idea was that we will incite the gods to lust through our sexual activity, and that will bring fertility to our land, to our animals, to our crops, and to ourselves as people and bringing offspring into the world. So religion and sexuality was highly mixed in this culture. Later on, kind of in the midst of a context, talking about worship in this section, it talks about bestiality. And it's like, why in the world is that in there? Well, that was a pagan practice for fertility with animals as well. And you're like, okay, this is pretty nasty. You know, I remember reading about Mayan religion and you're like, really, this is what they did? It was pretty gross, you know, and sacrifice and stuff like that of humans. And you're just like, wow, what in the world? And we live so far distant from that, that we read some of these things. Like, Why is God so uptight about this stuff? Well, that was how the nations around them worshiped. And he said, I don't want you to emulate them, to imitate them. I don't want you involved in that kind of stuff. Because later on, we'll say, okay, if you have sexual activity, you're unclean and you're not able to worship. And it's like, why is God so uptight about sex? He's not. He designed it. He created it. It's a good gift. What he's uptight about is sex being used in worship. And so when he says you can't participate in worship if you've had sexual activity, he's not saying that's bad, but he's saying, I don't want that at all associated with the worship of me as your true God. And so here, that's what he's saying. I want to distance your worship of me from the pagan practices that are going on around. As we look at our world today, to me, sexuality is one of those major gods today. We cannot even dare challenge how a person expresses their sexuality or say, you know, maybe there's some limits that we need to place on this because that is, you threaten that and every other right goes out the door. That is the right to who I am and it's so core to who I am. And God says, yes, that's a big part of who we are. 
but that's not part of our worship of God, and it shouldn't be something that we worship. And so here he says, I want you to worship me as I really am, and I don't want you to imitate these pagan nations around me. And I think when you encounter some of these really bizarre laws, like don't boil a kid goat in its mother's milk, you got to think, okay, there was probably something going on culturally that this was a practice of worship in these surrounding nations. And back in, the, I think, the end of the 1800s, they discovered, discovered a library in Ugarit, and there was a passage in there about boiling an animal in its mother's milk. So it's like, okay, this was a practice that went on there. It's like, okay, this has nothing to do with being kosher. We've talked about that, not eating a cheeseburger, separating your dairy from your meat. That's not what's going on. He's saying, I don't want you emulating what the pagans are doing around. I want your worship of me to be done in the way that I prescribe and this is all around you so i'm setting some guidelines so that doesn't infiltrate your worship i want you to worship me as i really am so worship there was huge advances in what it meant to worship god as well if you look at the end of this section it describes three feasts that all males had to go to and their feasts right their their celebrations and that's very different from the pagan religions. In the pagan religions, you got to kind of incite your God to do something beneficial for you. For Israelites, you go to give thanks to God for what he has done for you and celebrate that. It's not that God is really mm, kind of reticent to give you anything good and you've got to do all these things to try and incite him to be good to you. He's like, God is really, really good. And what he wants us as his people to do is to acknowledge that and give him thanks. That is feasting. It is not this, oh, this is a drag. I have to go up to, no, this I'm feasting on what God has done in this practice of resting on the Sabbath. All of those are refreshing, revitalizing things that God wants for his people. And so we worship him to be refreshed by God and to acknowledge with gratitude all that he has done for us. And that was a huge advance over what the practices were there. The second thing is work. Uh, Thomas, you wanna show the meme up there? Could have banned slavery or shellfish? Shellfish, he chose shellfish. This is a meme from an atheistic or agnostic website. I'm not even going to tell you what the name of that website is, but basically it's a ridiculing of God. It's like God's not uptight about the things he should be uptight about, like slavery. He's concerned about these little things. He's not a God worthy of our worship. And as we enter into these laws, we'll see this come right away. Verse one of chapter 21. You can turn that off now. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out for free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters and they shall go. And then he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out for free, then his master shall bring him to God and they shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. And then when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who he has designated for her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall know 
have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So you read that and it's like, what in the world is going on? This God is not a good God. He is advocating slavery here. A couple issues. Like I said before, this law is not coming into a neutral society. It's coming into a society where slavery already existed. And the slavery that existed there was more economic slavery. It was not racial slavery here. It's slavery dealing with another Hebrew. It wasn't that people went out and kidnapped other people and brought them into a slave relationship. In fact, in this section, it talks about if you kidnap someone, the death penalty comes to you. So the type of slavery that happened in this country would have been totally excluded in Israel at that point in time. This typically happens when there's an economic crisis in somebody's life, right? You see this when Joseph was down in Egypt, right? We had seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. When it gets to the years of famine, the people come and they're like, uh, we need some grain. And first year is like, okay, give me your money. They give him the money. Second year comes, uh, we're hungry. We need some grain. He says, okay, you got any livestock? Give me your livestock. Okay, third year comes. It's like, ah, uh, we need to eat. Okay, give me your land. Then another year comes. It's like, ah, uh, we need to eat, but we got nothing. Please buy us as your slaves. Let Pharaoh buy us. And Joseph says, okay, we'll enter into that contract. And the terms of that contract are you work the land and a fifth of your produce goes to Pharaoh and you are now his slaves. And they rejoiced and said, you are our savior. So to me, this is an issue. Again, I don't condone slavery. I'm so glad we've moved beyond that. But this was the reality of the world back then. And so God is regulating this practice. Unlike in Egypt, slavery wasn't for life. This was you served six years and the seventh year you went free. Okay. So that's very different than slavery at that time. It also limits the type of treatment you can give to a slave. There's no other ancient Near East docu document that deals with how you treat a slave or penalties for treating a slave poorly. You just did whatever you wanted to do with your slave here. But here, if you see in 21 verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hands, he shall be avenged. And that word avenged, most scholars say he shall be killed. That's the death penalty if you kill your slave there. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Okay? The slave was his property. That earning right over that period of time that the slave was owned was the owner's property. That sounds harsh to us, but that was just the way... It was in that day, but there couldn't be this type of super harsh treatment. And then later on, you see in verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. And this is 
thing called lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? It limits punishment. That sounds super harsh to us, but you got to remember what the culture was like in that time. Certain ancient Near Eastern codes, you steal something, it's the death penalty. Here in this section, you steal something, you have to make restitution. And sometimes if it's an ox, it's fivefold restitution. If it's a sheep, I think it's three or four. I don't know why the difference is there, but that's the reality. It's and again, and this sounds in essence to us really harsh. And it's like, wow. But in that day and age, this is a real benefit. It's like, you just cannot go out and beat your slave. If you beat your slave so hard and it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I don't think it means, okay, it's only the eye and the tooth. You can hurt them in any other area. But the reality is if you injure your slave, that slave goes free. So that's a limitation on the type of treatment that you give for your slaves. And again, I don't condone slavery. I don't think the Bible is condoning it, but it recognizes at this point in time, this is the best way to deal with this institution that has spread all over this ancient world. And you look at it, okay, if it's primarily economic, what's the other option here? Why doesn't God just say, get rid of all slavery? Why doesn't he just come out and say that? I wish he did, but he doesn't. But I think the other option is what was called debtor's prison. You're in debt, you go to prison, and you rot in prison. So which is preferable, to sell yourself to somebody else and to be indentured to them for six years while they provide you probably food and lodging and those kind of things? And then later in Deuteronomy, it says when that time is over, the slave owner has to give his slave resources to start a new life on his own. So it's not like just, oh, get out of here, but help that person get established on their own. So it's like, okay, this isn't perfect, but this is the world that God is dealing with. This is the world that his law is coming into. And for some reason he chooses in this situation to regulate that institution. And I'm not exactly sure why he doesn't eliminate it. But my default is to go and to look at God and say, okay, you're loving and good and kind. So if there's a reason you did it this way, it was beneficial for those people at that time. But then to me, you see in how God treats slavery, the seeds of its demise. You look at Philemon in the New Testament. Paul deals with this slave and he says, okay, you need to go back to your master. And basically he tells Philemon, hey, Philemon, you know, we got this longstanding relationship. We go back a long time. In fact, you owe me your spiritual life, basically. And he says, okay, Anisimus is coming back to you. I know he ran away, but, uh, but in essence, uh, treat him like a brother. And I think it's like, okay, there's a dramatic change there. And when the Bible regulates this practice of slavery or kind of indentured servitude where you sell yourself to somebody for a period of time because of economic hardship, it's being regulated so that the treatment is not harsh. Again, I'm glad we're at the stage we're at right now, but you look at certain employment opportunities, you know, and if it's, I'm a slave to the boss, you know, it's like, I'm going to work for this. And it, again, that's a huge advance over where they were, but this is the world that they were dealing with at that stage. And it's also interesting in Deuteronomy 23, it forbids a person from returning a runaway slave to his or her master. So God's saying, if you ran away, there's, there's freedom. So again, the, the idea is like, okay, I'm in trouble. And we read this about selling your daughter. And it's like, wow, that sounds super, super, super harsh. I could never do that. But what do you do as a dad? Say you're working a farm, you get an injury, and you've got three kids. And now all of a sudden, there's no way you can provide food. And there's no social services network. 
right? You can't go down to Social Security and say, I'm disabled, I need my Social Security benefits. There's none of that. So what does a dad do in that circumstance, in this culture? Okay, my girls die and starve with me, or I sell them to somebody for a period of time and say, okay, take care of my girls, feed them, clothe them. Sometimes it looks like they even became spouses of the father's son. And if that's the case, they're full members of the community and entitled to the full marriage rights. And if they're not given those, then they're free to leave and go. So again, we look at this and it's like, yeah, this is not a perfect world. It's not. But God is regulating that in the area of work and economics. And compared to all the other cultures around there, it was a huge advance because none of the other cultures talked about any rights that a slave would have. And most of those other codes, Code of Hammurabi, distinguished between the aristocracy and how they were treated and what penalties came with dealing with them and the lower class. Here, there's none of that distinction. Even if you're a slave owner and you kill your slave, there is vengeance to be paid, blood vengeance in that situation. So again, this sounds really harsh. You know, you get to those memes like that and say, oh, God is barbaric. And it's like, no, the culture was very barbaric. And this is God working with that culture, moving it forward. And again, I wish he would have said, don't have any slaves. But for some reason, he didn't. And I've just got to trust that that was the best way of making it the most loving, humane institution dealing with the brokenness of the world at that time. Also, you see in this section a huge value placed on human life. Again, that was not common in the ancient Near East. Murder was a capital offense, even here. And it says in verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay the judge as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here it's even regulating if two guys get in a fight and a woman has a miscarriage because of that. If the woman survives and the baby survives, okay, there's still a penalty to be paid. But if there was harm and it doesn't say harm to who, and I think that's ambiguous on purpose because it's either to the mother or to the child, it's life for life and it's harm for harm. So the reality is God is protecting life even of those that were unborn at that point in time. And you see in this as well, there's protections for negligence, right? If you've got an ox and this is a really ornery ox and he's goring people, okay, the first time he gores, there's one penalty assessed. But if you continue to allow that ox to go and gore other people, then the penalty is increased greatly. So this idea if I'm responsible for my brothers and sisters, you know, if I'm digging a pit and if I don't cover that pit up and if somebody falls into that pit, then I'm liable for the injury to that person that falls in that pit. And again, you can see these things in our laws as well. If you live up north and it was 20 below, I think, in some of the areas up north uh, this morning, you don't shovel your walk and somebody slips. What happens? You're liable for, for that slip, right? And the Old Testament talks about that, too. If you've got a roof. You need to put basically a railing around that roof because if somebody falls off and you don't have a railing, you're liable for that. So this idea that I am, in essence, to care for those people around me. And if I don't, there's consequences for that. Life is valuable and it's valuable for all, for women and for slaves and for even unborn children that were then born 
prematurely. So to me, you see in this, this huge advance, again, another thing that was really rare in these ancient Near Eastern law codes was any comments on women or slaves. Again, that was just, this is a highly patriarchal society. It's not good, but that's just how it was. And in all the other cultures around, they're just not dealt with. Here, you see this equality of rights of women and of those that were in positions of service and servitude. So the value of human life is high in this section. Also, to me, you see justice here. We've talked before about this Lex Talionis, eye for an eye, regulating punishment and limiting punishment so that it fits the crime. And again, that sounds barbaric to us, but in that culture, it was a huge advance. You know, if I steal something, okay, I'm caught. I got to pay a retribution. I'm not killed, right? And also, you know, if there was premeditation or if a death happened accidentally, there were different issues there as well. Back in that time, there was something called blood vengeance, that if somebody killed somebody in my family, regardless of how that happened, then I have a responsibility to go and kill that person, regardless of the incidents and what happened in that death. And here it's like, no, 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 that's not the case. There can be accidents, and I want to limit this blood vengeance that is going on. So there's justice there as well. If you turn over to chapter 23, verses 6 through 9, you shall not pervert justice. Due to the, your poor in his lawsuit, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I not acquit the wicked, you shall not take a bribe. For bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner or an immigrant. You shall know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So there's this justice, and it's not just for the elite, the aristocracy. It's not just for the Israelites, but it's also for the foreigners that are there as well. And again, this is radical in that day and age. So this justice, and even for the poor, do not treat them poorly because they are poor. But also, he says, up in verse 3 of the same chapter, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. There needs to be justice, yes. And I think the move for social justice is important. But also, we need to recognize that sometimes we can pursue social justice unjustly, that the actions taken to produce that are unjust. And then here it's saying you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit, but you shall show justice in that way. So again, justice goes across the board based on truth, not based on position in society, being true to what is going on. So there's justice there. You see the value of the family, and I know I'm going on here. Sounds harsh in that culture. If you look at chapter 21, verse 15, and whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. In verse 15, that word for strike is an extremely violent word. Sometimes it's translated kill. So this is not just a toddler. It's like, eh, okay, bring that toddler to the gate. We're going to stone that child. No, this is an intent. And later on in Deuteronomy, it talks about having a disobedient child that is getting drunk and a glutton. And it's like, okay, that's probably not, you know, your average four-year-old that's doing that. That's somebody much older in that case. But again, here is the idea. The family is the foundation of society, and that needs to be protected. You look at some of what's happening with gangs when families aren't there, like MS-13 in South America and some of the atrocious things when kids are left on their own to pursue this together. I was reading about 
them dragging a live girl through the streets behind a pickup truck in these towns. And the police did absolutely nothing because they were afraid of these people. And you're realizing, okay, this is barbarism. And it's like, yeah, that stuff was going on. And so God is curtailing that. Again, to us, it sounds harsh, but that was his way of protecting this fledgling group in this world that they were entering into in Canaan. And finally, I see in this section a concern for the most vulnerable in society. Chapter 22, verses 21 through 28. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat a widow or a fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children become fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's coat and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that's his only covering and his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So you see in this law a concern and a compassion for those that are most vulnerable in society. The immigrant, right? The widow, the orphan, the slave, all of those are protected in the society and they're protected by God himself. He says, I will, in essence, take vengeance in these cases if you treat these people wrong. And even kind of the debt slavery that people go into. In the newsy tablets, debt if you go into debt, what's your APR? Your annual APR, 50% APR, right? Hammurabi was a little better. If you lent grain, it was 33 and a third percent. And if you lent silver, it was 20 to 25%. But again, this could put people in perpetual slavery. And God's saying, you do not do that to your fellow Israelites. You do not take advantage of them when hard times come and charge them 50% interest that they will never be able to get out of. Again, you see God's care and concern for this. And you see, again, even over this longer term, there's a year of Jubilee where all the land returns to its original owners so that there won't be this permanent underclass that's oppressed by a permanent upper class in the society. God is very concerned with justice in equality in economics. And again, we look around and it's like, okay, these laws in some sense seem out of date and out of touch to us, but for them and that culture, this would have been a huge advance and it would have sounded very, very different, especially if you were among one of those classes of people that typically in other cultures had no rights at all. And even you see in this a helping of an enemy. Verse 23, four and five. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall kick it and make it go farther astray because you hate your enemy and you want to take him or her down. No, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you are, shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So here you see even a love for enemies that's prescribed that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. So again, we read these things and we see, wow, this is so out of touch, out of date. But I think if you put it in context, you realize what a huge advance of compassion and grace God was bringing through this law at that culture. And I would wish, and I think most moderns would wish that he would have pushed it further, but he knew what he was doing. And this is how he chose 
to bring his law to bear on people in that society. And there's probably all sorts of unintended consequences if you eliminate something right away versus gradually regulating and eliminating it over time. So again, as I read this section, to me, the question to ask is how do I apply these principles in my life? This love of God and love of people. How about in my worship? What is God calling me to do? How about in my work? Is there fairness and justice there? How about in my valuing of life? What is God calling me to do there? How about in working for justice in this world around me? How about highly valuing families? And how about showing concern for the most vulnerable in our society? I don't think there's a list of rules and regulations that should guide our hearts there, but we've got the Holy Spirit in us that will nudge us and move us in a direction of action there. But to me, you see God's heart for all of these things encapsulated in this law that at first reading seems kind of out of touch and even unethical, some would say. But again, you've got to remember that this is being given in a culture 3,500 years ago that's very, very different than ours. So to me, as I read this, I have a better glimpse of God's heart and what he wants for me as I interact with other people and how he wants me to interact with him. I don't just approach God in any way I want. I do it in the way that he has prescribed. And for me, that is through Jesus Christ. And I have a concern and I have a responsibility to love those people around me, even my enemies. And that's all the way back in this book of the covenant that at first glance seems so out of touch and out of date. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, uh, that your truth is unchanging, but the application of that truth varies from situation to situation. And Lord, sometimes we want it all spelled out in black and white, but you want us to pursue wisdom and to rely on your spirit as we work these issues out in our lives. Lord, help us to be passionate about loving you correctly and about loving those around us. Lord, help us to be concerned for the most vulnerable, to care for the things that you care about. Lord, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, help us to approach it with an understanding that you are love, that you are not an ogre of a God, but you are working in the midst of a very broken world to bring your truth to bear and your change to bear in people's lives. Thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that you do not give up. Thank you that your justice, those wheels, they, they grind and grind slowly, but they do grind and you will see justice accomplished. But Lord, help us to be part of that process as well. So Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the principles that we see illustrated in your word and just help us to live them out in our broken and fallen world in the unique ways that we're called to be your children here and now. May we depend on your spirit and may you give us the strength to value the things you value. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.